I'm Jess O'Callaghan, and welcome to the AudioCraft podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded on the lands of the Darug people and on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge that this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. In this feed, you'll find all the recordings from the 2020 AudioCraft Podcast Festival, keynotes, under the hood sessions, and workshops like this one. How can we make our podcasts more accessible? How can we do better? And where do we begin? Erin Kian is a disabled writer, performer, and producer with Passa Vulpes Productions. In this talk, Erin gives you practical steps you can take to make your podcast and your production processes more accessible, both on air and behind the scenes. Hi, everyone. Um, so before I start, I would just like to acknowledge that I am broadcasting from the lands of the Bundurong people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, sovereignty was not ceded. <laughs> uh, Australia's a bit shit. I would like to pay my respects to all elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Indigenous people who may be watching. Um, Colonisation and genocide is ongoing to this day and I would encourage you all to put thought into how we can work to make that less. Um, I highly recommend paying the rent. Make donations to Indigenous organisations in your area. If you'd like somewhere to start, if you're in Australia, I can highly recommend Black Rainbow, which is a Indigenous LGBTQIA plus organisation. So, uh, hi, I'm very nervous. Um, <laughs> so please bear with me. I am quite nervous about this. I'm a lot better at presenting on a stage in front of lots of people than I am talking to a webcam. So today we are going to talk about what accessibility is, why you should do it. We are also going to talk about social improvements, production improvements, post-production improvements, basically every part of your production workflow, we're going to work at trying making it more accessible. We're going to talk about web and social media improvements. We're going to talk about live show improvements. And we're going to talk about policy improvements, which is something that's not really talked about very much in the podcasting industry at the moment, but I think that we should get to that. Uh, and then we will do a more formal Q&A at the end. Um, so I suppose I should introduce myself, actually. So yeah, um, my name's Aaron. My pronouns are he, him. Um, I am part of Passable Post Productions. We do predominantly fiction podcasts with LGBT themes. Uh, and I'm disabled, which is why I'm qualified <laughs> to tell you all what to do. Um, I don't work in accessibility. I'm quite severely disabled. I spend most of my time on bed rest, use a wheelchair to get around outside. My background is in disability performing arts on stage. I started doing that in 2012. So all of my experience in the arts industry has always been heavily based around disability and disability politics. So with that in mind, we need to have a quick talk about language. So I am going to be using the phrasing of disabled person or disabled people rather than person first language like person with a disability or people with a disability. I'm doing this because this is how I identify and, and in the disability community that I am a part of, identity first language is strongly preferred. This workshop is not to have a debate on this. Both sides of this discussion have very valid points. I'm just letting you know where I'm coming from and why we're using this language, because that's the language that I use and my peers use. So that's why we're doing that. So let's talk about why you should care. 
The WHO reports 15% of the world's population lives with a disability. That's over 1 billion people. Um, in Australia, that number is actually a little bit higher, about 20% or one in five people in Australia are living with a disability. And I imagine that, you know, somewhere around those numbers is about right for most of the world. Now, obviously, not all disabled people are the same, but if you aren't doing everything you can to make your work accessible to disabled people, that's one billion people that you're potentially leaving out of your audience and your production team. That's huge. That's a huge number of people. And let's not do that. Let's do better than that. Also, access is a human right. Many countries, including Australia, actually have laws requiring reasonable accommodations. If you are up to date with podcast news, you may actually know that Gimlet is currently being sued for not providing captioned versions of their podcasts. So even if you don't really care about disabled people, maybe care a little bit about the laws. <laughs> now, what reasonable accommodations mean varies a lot industry to industry. In podcasting, personally, I would say something like having transcripts is a reasonable accommodation. Something like captions may be a little bit uh, harder, especially for indie productions, but you should have something. Your podcast accessibility is another step towards society-wide inclusion of disabled people. This is actually a very big responsibility, and it, you may not feel like it's your responsibility. You just make a podcast, right? Like, podcasts don't matter, but they do matter. Podcasts are a part of culture, and therefore, everything you do is a part of culture. And so you have to accept the responsibility of making your work a part of making a better world. And that means working towards inclusion of disabled people in larger society and in your podcast. And the final point is a very positive one. We can do good shit for you. We can enrich your show. We can make your show great. We will yell about how good your show is on Twitter. We will tell all our friends. We will give you really interesting insights. Like we can enrich your show if you let us. So that's the main reasons why. If you wanna just make it real short form though, why accessibility? because it's a good thing to do and you want to be a good person. I know you're a good person and that's why you're here to learn about this stuff. So let's talk about what accessibility actually is because I imagine, especially if you haven't been exposed to disability politics, you might have an idea of accessibility as kind of a checklist like, oh yes, we tick off wheelchair accessible and captions and braille and now we're done, we're accessible, but that's not actually what accessibility is. Accessibility is simply the pathway between a disabled person and the thing they're trying to access, okay? So it's a relationship. It's how do you get someone access to the thing they want? So when we look at something like wheelchair ramps as an accessibility accommodation, that is creating a literal pathway for someone to get in a building. But something like, say, Braille is giving the pathway between a vision impaired person and the thing they want to read. And so if you start thinking about accessibility under this framework, thinking about it as a pathway, as a, a relationship, you'll start to see that it's not as simple as just ticking things off on a list. It's actually quite more complicated than that. All disabled people are different. We all have very different needs. And you can't be perfect. You can't. <laughs> and we'll come back to that in a moment. But it's not about trying to be perfect. It's about trying to build these pathways. It's about strengthening that relationship between disabled people and your podcast. So 
as I mentioned, not everything can be 100% accessible. It's literally impossible. One of the reasons for that is this thing that we call competing access needs. Now, the way I like to explain this is I want you to imagine one disabled person who has very severe migraines. And then I want you to imagine one person with very poor vision, right? Someone vision impaired. The person with migraines might need a room to be very dimly lit, very quiet, so it doesn't trigger a migraine. The person with low vision might need a very bright room so that they can actually see and get around safely. Both of these people's needs are important and both of these people's needs are, you know, needed, but you can't do both at the same time. You know, you can't answer both of those things with the same solution. Now, in this particular case, a way you could work around this is to have the brightly lit room and then have sunglasses for the person with the migraine. And that would be an example of how to work with different needs around access. So I wanna be clear that when we're talking about accessibility here, I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm not asking you to make anything 100% accessible because honestly, that's impossible. I'm asking you to think about the pathways between you and the audience and your podcast and how you can smooth that threshold, right? So I don't want you to worry too much if you feel overwhelmed by this workshop or if you feel overwhelmed by the very concept. I don't want you to freak out about it. I want you to stay calm and I want you to think about what you can do and do that. Even if you only implement one thing that you learned today, that's still a really good move, okay? So just do what you can, stick with me, we'll get through this. Don't, don't be scared is what I'm trying to tell you. So the first step of making your show accessible is actually to think of us as not only your audience. A lot of times when we think about accessibility and podcasting, we're thinking about accessibility for the audience. And part of the reason that that's the only thing we think about is because there aren't as many disabled people included in every industry. It's not just podcasts and the arts. Making your show accessible means making your production accessible. Include us on your team, include us as your guests. And also if you have us on your team, we are more likely going to know how to identify excellent access accommodations that you can implement. You know, one of the reasons when we launched with our podcasts, I knew that I wanted to release all our podcasts with captions because that was just logical to me coming from my background in disability arts. It was quite a surprise to get into the podcast industry and see that captions are extremely rare, extremely rare. So I want you to think about including disabled people in your production. And I want you to be explicit about it because we are often even if we're not outright told we're not welcome, we are made to be unwelcome. So you often need to be very explicit about welcoming us into your production. When you post a ad for a job, mention that you welcome disabled people. Link to your accessibility policy, which we'll talk about <laughs> a bit later. Like make it really explicit that you do actually welcome us and that you are willing to put the effort in to work with us. So, Let's talk about some ways to deal with disabled team members so that you don't frustrate or offend them. <laughs> My first tip on this is don't ask invasive questions. If it's the kind of thing someone would talk to their doctor about, don't ask it, okay? Don't ask what people's disability is, ask what their access needs are. And we'll come back to that in a moment. So I have some other general tips here. Don't interact with working dogs. 
uh, guide dogs or emotional support dogs, anything like that, just don't interact with them. Pretend they're not there. If the person who owns the dog says you can interact with the dog, go wild. But assume that you cannot. Just pretend they're not there, you know? Don't touch people's mobility aids. Do not touch wheelchairs, crutches, walking sticks, walking frames, anything like that. Don't touch them. That is basically like touching someone's body. So again, and just like touching someone's body, ask for consent first. If they say yes, go ahead, then you can go ahead. But the mobility aids aren't objects the way abled people think of objects. They really are more like a part of our body. So think about how you would react if someone just touched you randomly. It's probably not great. People like support workers. Now, they might be uh, professional support workers. They may be a friend. They may be a family member. Anyone who is there to support the disabled person, be nice to them. I can't believe I have to say this, but unfortunately I do. But also don't speak to the support worker when you should actually be speaking to the disabled person. Do not ask a question of a support worker that is about the disabled person. Ask the person, they're right there. So be open to old or different technology. Now this is squishing a lot of things into one thing. What I mean by this is something that you might already think of as say assisted communication devices which is very, you know, different technology from how a lot of us talk, but it's still a vital part of communication. I specifically mention old technology because a lot of disabled people, especially intellectually disabled people, can actually struggle a lot with things like email or messaging and would much prefer a phone call. So one of the best things you can do to deal well with disabled people in your team is to be open to different styles of communication, you know, be open to using different devices than you might personally automatically go for. Now, obviously, if you're disabled and you can't use one of those devices, then we come up against those competing access needs. And if you're the producer, I mean, you kind of have to take precedence on that. Relatedly, don't get too hung up on eye contact or body language. It, it's really not as important as it feels like it is if you're not autistic, if you're not neurodivergent. Like, it's really not that important. <laughs> Use plain language and speak clearly. This is important, especially for people with intellectual disabilities and people who are deaf or hard of hearing. You don't need to yell. Just speak clearly. Don't do the, the weird movie thing where you talk real loud and slow. That's unnecessary uh, and kind of condescending. Just speak clearly and plainly, and that's fine. And importantly, ask about access needs. Now, access needs are, again, that threshold between the disabled person and the thing they're trying to access, right? So the need is treated by an accommodation. That's the language we use around this kind of thing. So let's talk about how to ask about access needs. So the really simple way is to just straight up say, do you have any access needs? But it is important to note that a lot of disabled people, kind of like I was saying about how we don't feel welcome unless it's explicit. If someone says, do you have access needs? A lot of us will go, oh, no, no, I'm fine. Like sometimes we, like I have to ask for wheelchair access. So that's a pretty obvious one. But there are some things you might not automatically think to say if someone asks about your access needs. Things like, oh, I'll need to sit down. Oh, I'll need a break. Oh, it, it needs to be okay for me to bring food into the studio. Like that kind of thing are the kinds of things you need to think about. So I have some examples here of better ways to ask questions. 
Um, so things like, will you need a seat? How often would you like breaks? Can you handle stairs? Do you need parking? And the last two here are, are you able to do whatever? And is this thing okay? It doesn't have to be a really formal question. Just asking like, you know, hey, is this okay? It goes a long way. <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about uh, recording once you actually start getting into production. Use wheelchair accessible studios if you use studios. Now you might think, oh, but we don't have anyone on our team that uses a wheelchair. That's fine. Use an accessible studio anyway, because A, that means if you have a guest who uses a wheelchair, they can come do it at the same studio. B, give the accessible studios your money support them because wheelchair access despite being a legal requirement in a lot of countries is much rarer than it should be so yes please use wheelchair accessible studios if possible even if no one that you know of in your production needs one have a portable recording setup if possible um, so if you're an in-person recorder, obviously these days we're all kind of doing things remotely. Having a portable setup means that you can travel to people who are housebound or bedbound without having to sacrifice anything. You're not asking too much of them. It also gives you a lot more freedom to go to people who might live in regional areas. So even outside of disability, it's a really valuable thing. Absolutely have portable setup if possible. I can highly recommend the Zoom portable recorders. That's what we use. We love them. Now, this next one is very specific, but it's something that I've found very important. Make mic placement work for a person's position rather than trying to contort someone into a position for a microphone. A lot of the time, especially when you're dealing with professional uh, sound techs, sometimes people will be like, here's the microphone. Okay, now I need you to stand here and put your head here and all that kind of stuff. That's not always ideal, especially for people with chronic pain or, you know, all kinds of things. So get someone comfortable and then make the mic position work for them. It's a very, very small detail, but it makes a huge, huge difference. Offer subsidies for travel if possible, um, especially if they are a wheelchair user because you need special taxis and it's a whole thing. And also a lot of public transport in a lot of places is not accessible. So obviously this is something that depends on your budget. If you're a hobby podcast, you may not have the budget for this, but I would encourage you to really strongly consider it. Don't be afraid to take breaks. I know there is a very strong, uh, and I understand it, um, idea of like, keep going because that's when people sort of relax and open up and the conversation flows and everything gets good. And that is true to a certain degree, but it can also mean that someone just gets tireder and tireder and distracted and uncomfortable, and then they're not giving you their best anymore. So don't be afraid to take breaks. And you can even keep recording while you take a break. We do that for almost all of our productions. Because so that way, I mean, if nothing else, it often means there's really cool B-roll to give your patrons uh, later. Yeah, like take breaks. It's okay. I promise you're not going to lose the good tape by taking breaks. If anything, you might actually gain something better. And this one is more about uh, the content of your episodes. Introduce yourself every episode. I know a lot of podcasts, they go like, oh, you know who we are by now. They might not. First of all, your new viewers, don't, your new viewers, your new listeners <laughs> don't know you yet. But also, I mean, I have part of my condition, I have neurological problems. That means I have a really bad memory, especially short-term memory, which is why all my points are on these slides so that I don't have to read off notes while I talk to you all. 
so introduce yourself. And also this isn't a disability thing, but introduce yourself and introduce your pronouns at the same time. Just normalize it. It's good. It's good practice. Um, so yeah, introduce yourself at the top of every episode. Um, and ideally have people introduce themselves so that people can identify a name with the voice saying the name. It also means that people know how to pronounce the name correctly. So once you actually get into the studio and you're doing all your mixing and mastering and audio editing, that's where we start thinking about mixing and sound design. So I want to talk about panning for a minute. Now, this can be a little bit controversial, but it's something that I very strongly believe in. Mono is better than stereo. Uh, pretty much, I'm going to say 90% of the time, and we'll get to that 10% in a moment. If there's no reason for your podcast to be in stereo, don't put it in stereo, put it out in mono. This affects predominantly people with one-sided hearing loss, but it also affects people with sensory disorders. I mean, I have very minor sensory issues from my stuff and I hate stereo. It just makes me feel off kilter and awkward. So mono is better. Now, if stereo or binaural audio is important to the project, which is absolutely legitimate, I strongly recommend having a mono version available. You can even make it a different feed if you want to, um, or just release it on the same feed with mono in big letters or something. It just makes it, you know, that way you can still say, here's the intended version of this. We want, we would prefer you to listen to the 3D version, but if for some reason you can't, here's a mono version. It just means that you're able to like include more people and expand your audience. Now, if you really, really don't want to do mono, try not to pan more than 50% to either side. Now, I, I really, really would prefer you do mono, really strongly prefer, uh, or have a mono version, even if you're doing something like binaural. And like, I think binaural recording is really amazing. So I totally get it if that's your thing. Um, but have a mono version available. So I would rather you do that than do any panning. Uh, but if you must, keep it to 50%. Don't do it too far. Um, and as, as I say here, you can be upfront about the intended experience. Like you can straight up say, look, we produced this as a stereo experience. We produced this as a binaural 3D experience. So we would prefer you listen to it that way. But if you can't, here's another option. People are generally fine. They'll see intended experience and they'll be like, oh, okay, cool. I'll do that. But you're still making this space for people who can't do that to still enjoy your content. So now we're gonna talk about my biggest pet peeve in podcasts, which is normalization and compression. So obviously I think we all kind of know that even like volume is important. Um, like it's, it, it, it just makes a much better listening experience. Um, but it's especially important for a lot of your disabled audience. Again, people with hearing loss uh, or people with sensory issues. It's really, really important. Use your subjective hearing. You can't judge everything on a DB. You really just can't. Luffs is better, obviously, because it measures subjective loudness. But even having said that, I would strongly suggest just, just listen to it. Just listen to it with your ears, with your earballs. Have a listen. Make sure it all sounds good. Please, 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 please make sure that your music is not blaring. Please. Like, your intro music is probably too loud. Like, it is probably too loud. 
just because dialogue and music sound completely different volume wise. And what if you're just looking at peaks, you're it's going to be all wrong. So you have to listen. Also, try not to have any really sudden loud noises. Um, now, obviously, there's some leeway here. If you are doing a like horror podcast, right? You might really love to have that nice loud bang or something to startle someone. And I'm fine with that. I genuinely am. But maybe include a content warning so that people know to look out for it. So the other thing I want to talk about when it comes to mixing and sound design is harsh sound design. So this might sound a little bit odd, and, and this is something I know a lot of people struggle with because we have this idea of sound design as this pristine thing that has to be perfect. You know, we all have our expensive, you know, my, my $300 monitor headphones, we all have our thing, you know. First of all, half the people listening to your podcast are listening to it in a car anyway. Um, second of all, I think that being accessible is more important than being a perfect experience for you. So this is a very minor thing that can make a really big difference is to just soften the sound design a little bit. A couple of decibels can make a huge difference on really loud or sudden noises like we were talking about. Also, if you have really harsh noises like static or, or just someone, I don't know, you have a, a snake character in your fiction podcast that hisses the whole time. Just like cutting off a little bit of the top end of the frequencies will actually go a long way to making it more easy to listen to. Uh, one of our shows, Nims Nebulous Notions, has a lot of static in it because we have like glitchy signals from outer space. And for all of those, I basically just cut the the top end off and while it still does sound harsh we still have warnings for harsh sound it's much much more tolerable so that is another thing that i'm i would like you to think about and again this is all subjective you want to use your use your earballs you know see how it sounds if you can't tell much of a difference especially i would especially say do it because if you can't tell the difference between the full spectrum, and then just curving a little bit of the top end off. Trust me when I say someone in your audience will, and they will thank you for it. Or they'll yell at you for it. I mean, you know, this is podcasts. Don't read the reviews on Apple, folks. Like, you're just asking for a bruising, aren't you? So let's talk about transcripts briefly. I did say that we would talk about transcripts. So a good transcript is accurate and descriptive. It should be exactly as spoken, okay? So if you have a scripted podcast and you record it and then something gets changed, you know, like if it's uh, fiction, you might have an actor ad lib a line or even if it's nonfiction, you might phrase something slightly differently. Please go edit your transcript. Make sure that it matches what is said, okay? It's really important that it is accurate. But it's totally fine to be vague when it comes to mood in sound design. If you want to just write like moody music or something or like dark gothic tone, that's great. Like the point of the transcript is to get across what it sounds like. So if you have to be a little bit vague to get it across, that's totally fine. It's about getting across what it sounds like. Host your transcripts on your website. Now, uh, how you do this, there's lots of different ways. I really recommend putting it on your website, however. I also recommend putting it on a actual web page on your website instead of like a PDF or a text document. You can absolutely do a PDF or text document, especially if you're on a website that sort of uh, costs extra money for more pages. 
I totally understand in that case if you want to host it on Google Drive or something. But I really strongly recommend you put your transcripts on your web pages because, first of all, it's great for your SEO. Like, it makes it really good for people to actually find your website, find your podcast. It's also really good for journalists. I know I have a few journalists in the chat. I'm sure they'll just scream yes. Like, when journalists are looking for something specific or like a particular moment from your show it is much much easier for them to go to a transcript than it is to like listen to the whole episode to find the bit they're talking about even i had an experience where i was looking to quote one part of an episode in a podcast i loved and the podcast didn't have transcripts so i had to listen through like three different episodes to find it so i could like write exactly what it was so Transcripts are good for a lot of reasons. (laughs) So yeah, put them on your website. Now, any format is fine as long as you are consistent. It does not have to be perfect. We use square brackets for noises or uh, feelings sometimes. Sometimes we use brackets, depends on the show. And then we just use names in all caps and a colon. So it doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be consistent. So don't worry too hard about, oh, does it need to be like BBC radio format, like in the, no, it doesn't. It's fine. Just make it consistent. Just make sure that whatever you're doing, it's consistent. Oh, so here's a good question. Not to worry. Is there a style format that's preferred for flow and readability? Not that I'm aware of. And the reason I say that is because everyone's idea of what is better for flow and readability is different person to person. If you ask 10 people, you will get 10 responses. So I think it's it, it would be misleading of me to say that there is a correct way or a better way to format transcripts because someone hates that format, you know. And this is why I say it's more important to be consistent than anything else. As long as it's readable, it's fine. Um, yes. So uh, then my all caps do not pay well transcripts don't put them on your patreon for patrons only they need to be publicly available for free just like your podcast is if your podcast is paywalled i guess you can i mean i still wouldn't recommend having them paywalled to be honest don't paywall please i'm begging you uh yes so we have a question about formatting issues to avoid for screen readers and discussion of pdfs i really strongly avoid i would recommend against pdfs i think again If it's kind of the best you've got, it's better than nothing. Going back to that, do something. But PDFs are not great for screen readers. Uh, Some PDFs can be. It's really tricky. And I don't think anyone, not even Adobe, fully understands how to get perfect uh, PDFs that are screen readable. So we're talking about places to pay someone else uh, to get to do your transcripts. If you're like, oh my God, I already have to listen to myself for like three hours to edit my podcast together. I don't want to do it again to write transcripts. I totally get it. I also hate doing it. So we either do it ourselves or we hire one of our friends to do it. These are the two websites I recommend. Now, transcription.network is by far and away my top recommendation. Transcription.network is a literal network of independent transcribers. So you know when you talk to someone and book someone through Transcription Network, you're going to be getting someone who is their own person. There's no big company skimming money off the top. There's no middlemen. So yeah, Transcription Network is absolutely the one I recommend the most by far. 
You can find people doing all kinds of different jobs there. You can find someone for ongoing work. Very strongly recommend it. If you are a transcriber, absolutely, like, go plug your stuff there as well. Also plug your stuff in the chat. We want, we, we love to support local business. Now, I have listed Rev.com. So first of all, Rev.com has uh, had a very big oops when it turned out they were paying people really bad and treating their employees very badly. Um, I have been informed by people who work for them that it is actually much better now, and that's why I am including them on this slide. Rev.com is one of the most reliable places to get transcripts done by a person. So, like, and I'll explain why that's important in a second. So, yeah, Rev.com is generally my top recommendation for getting, if you if you need it fast, because I think they have, like, a 24-hour turnaround. It's very impartial. You don't know the transcriber. You won't get the same one every time. So, obviously, lots of better reasons to go with someone off Transcription Network or find an independent person on Twitter. But Rev.com is really good in a pinch. Now, I can see talk in the chat about Otter AI. And there are also things like Temi, and Rev even has a cheap uh, machine transcription service on it as well. Uh, these are all okay options, but the thing is they are not very reliable. And you will usually have to go over the transcript anyway, um, which to me just adds work when I could have just been doing the transcript myself. But, hey, it might be good for you. I will also say... A lot of the machine transcription services do not cope with Australian accents very well. We have tried Otter and a few others, and it's just been garbage. It's been absolute gibberish the whole time. It's really, yeah, so we've got, it's good if you have no money, basically. Although I would personally say that if you have no money, I would sink some time into it instead and just do it yourself. Having said that, if machine uh, transcription is something that benefits you, absolutely go nuts. Like you can try Otter AI, you can try Temi, uh, or as I said, Rev also has um, a pretty decent, as far as I know, machine service. But overall, I'm generally going to suggest you get a person to do your transcripts. Also because a machine can't do description. So if you have sound effects or music or something like that, a machine doesn't know what to do with that. They can only do words. So that's another reason that I think it's very important to have a human do your transcription. And I need to move on. So captions. The way if you want to do captions for your podcast, which I encourage you to do, I love captions. I vastly prefer them to transcripts. They're not very common uh, in podcasting at the moment, but we can all change that if we all do captions. So to do captions, you need a video. Unfortunately, there are only a couple of, uh, of very experimental uh, types of technology to do captions for audio only. I know, I think Oz Accessibility is working on one or has one. I haven't tried it though because I can't afford it. So generally in these kinds of situations, we're going to be looking at using videos for captions. So you don't need to do anything fancy. You just put like your cover art for your, your podcast and then whack audio on top of it. That's all you need to do to have a video for captions. It does not need to be fancy. One thing I will say, and you'll see it in all caps on this slide, do not have flashing or strobing lights on your videos. These can trigger seizures and migraines and just a bad time for a lot of people. So don't do that, okay? No flashing, no strobing, okay? Same rules as going to the shops at midday. So yeah, just it doesn't have to be fancy. Um, now, if you do a conversation podcast or an interview podcast and you really want to go hard on a video, 
record the camera, like have a camera recording. Uh, this can actually be really good, especially for hard of hearing or deaf people because they can see your facial expressions as you talk. So if that's an option, go wild. Like that would be fantastic. Uh, there's a really good podcast, the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, which is a book podcast and all of their YouTube and I believe on Facebook as well, they do videos of them just sitting in front of a webcam and doing the podcast that way. So you absolutely can just put a camera in front of the people talking if you're the type of podcast where that works. Uh, obviously for things like fiction, so our kind of stuff doesn't really work. So it doesn't need to be fancy. Okay, let's talk about what make good captions. Good captions are clear and accurate. Again, if someone says something that is slightly different to a script, it needs to be fixed. It needs to be clear. However, do not simplify speech, okay? If I have seen captions where the caption is basically like a, a simplified version of a sentence that someone says. Don't do that. Captions should be exactly as spoken. That's really important. So open captions and closed captions are terms you might have heard. It's actually very simple. Open captions are always visible. Closed captions are optionally viewed like by the person who needs them. So, you know, when we talk about like closed captions in cinema, that usually means the horrible, we call them crap views. Um, these horrible little machines that you hook on and plays that they're awful, by the way. Um, on something like YouTube, closed captions are literally the little thing where you click CC and then there's captions and you can turn that off anytime you want. So YouTube captions, are generally closed captions. There are times where open captions are good. We use open captions for all of our in-person uh, shows because we can play the captions on screen and it's fine. But, you know, either is fine. Neither is necessarily better depending on what medium you're using, which we'll get to YouTube specifically in a moment. Another pet peeve, don't use caption as annotations. Like if you want to make a note about something that's happening on screen or in a show, the captions is not the place to put it. The captions are there to say what is being said or the sounds that are being played. It's not a place for you to put fun in-jokes. Like I do understand the drive to do that, but don't do it. It messes up the accessibility of it. You cannot rely on auto-generated captions. This is what we were saying about machine transcription. It's the same thing. I mean, machines just aren't as good at it, basically. And I'm sure we've all seen great memes come out of YouTube videos that have auto-captions turned on, and it's like a video of Mass Effect, and then it says something about McDonald's, you know? So, yeah, you can't use auto-generated captions. They have to be at least looked over. But hand-coded is better. So, colours. Yellow and white are the best colours for captions. Uh, if uh, For all the Australians who grew up on late night SBS TV, you're already familiar with good yellow captions. I think YouTube defaults to white. Most uh, streaming services let the viewer actually select the colour and outline of captions, which is really good. That's less work for you. And captions should always have a dark outline or backing. That can either be a black bar or just the outline. That's fine. So let's talk about software for doing captions. So you have the main ones I would recommend are here. Subtitle Edit is a really good uh, open source program for capt uh, making captions uh, on software. Handbrake is really good for hard coding open captions. So like I was saying, if you ever want to have a video that has open captions, you can put an SRT file into Handbrake and burn it uh, straight onto a video. Both of these are completely free and open source, so you don't need to pay anyone for them, which is the best price. You can also use YouTube to directly make captions. 
You can also then download the SRT file from YouTube. So if you want, if you don't want to download subtitle edit, but you still want to download Handbrake to hard code something, you can actually use YouTube, just make a private video and do the captions and you can then download that. So closed captions on YouTube. Closed captions are better than open captions for YouTube. If you are uploading your podcast to YouTube, I very strongly recommend you use the closed captions rather than open captions. The main reason for this is that closed captions on YouTube work with screen readers. If you put them in open captions, they don't. I can already hear someone going, why would someone who needs captions also need to use a screen reader? There are lots of people who use both of those things for lots of different reasons. And this comes back to thinking about disability and access. Don't Just don't try and think about what someone's disability is. It's about how we're not here to do that. We're not doctors. We're not their doctors. Your job is to think about how to make things accessible to them as an audience, not to question their medical history. So closed captions, much better than open captions for YouTube. Okay. Oh my goodness. How many slides? Okay. We're nearly, we're getting there. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about content warnings. Content warnings are very, very important for the psychological safety of your audience. They should be both in audio and in text on the website, in the show notes, everywhere that's relevant. They should be explicit and clear rather than something like adult content or distressing content that doesn't actually tell you what you're in for. If you hear a podcast warning that's like, this contains distressing content, it's like, okay, but what? <laughs> you know, As, you know, especially if you're listening to a murder podcast, like, well, yes, I know I'm listening to murder, but then suddenly there's a thing about torture, which you weren't expecting. That's a really big thing. So, you know, be very specific. Spoilers is not a good reason to not warn for something. If you're like, oh, but we don't want to spoil what happens in the episode. First of all, why are you like writing something so bad that a content warning spoils it? Why can that spoil it? How have you done that bad of a job? Even if that's true, actually, this, that's not an excuse. A warning is like a rating, okay? You know how when you go to the movies, there's like, this is rated R or this is rated M? No one says, but if we rate it R, that ruins the movie and spoils the ending. That's ridiculous. It's giving people context to what's happening. There is no way to warn for every type of content that might upset someone, but here's a list of some, some, not all, of the most common things that you can warn for. Things like death, sexual assault, harm against children or animals, swearing, violence, gun violence. Now, I specifically keep general violence and gun violence separate because and I hope this I hope this is an okay way to explain this. There are a lot of very traumatized people specifically around gun violence that might be fine with like karate chopping. Uh, this is especially relevant for teenagers in American schools, for example. I recommend keeping those separate. Uh, hate crimes, abuse, torture, homophobia, transphobia, racism. Uh, now, I also have here depictions of hospitals and other medical content. I didn't know how to phrase this uh, exactly, so I hope you kind of get what I mean. You can take it from me as someone who has PTSD uh, from hospitals that hospitals can be very, very triggering places. And this is for people, like not just people who've been in them, but you know, people who have had cancer or have had been a victim of medical malpractice, say, but also, you know, even just someone whose loved one had recently passed away in palliative care might be very sensitive to a hospital setting. So anything that's sort of hospitally or medically, I would recommend warning for in some way. Body horror, very common thing. Depictions of mental distress, uh, such as panic attacks. And I specifically say mental distress and not only panic attacks because there's lots of different things that come under that. 
anyone who's having a like I have like like a fool, I wrote my PTSD into one of my podcasts thinking this is great. I'm doing great representation for PTSD, forgetting that I then had to direct it and edit it and listen to it over and over and over. Um, don't do don't be me. But you know, any kind of depiction of mental distress can be very triggering for someone who shares that kind of mental distress. So be careful of that. Uh, and this last one isn't really a disability thing. This is more of a cultural thing, but names and images of people who have died. Uh, that is particularly relevant here in Australia for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. I recently learned that Navajo people also do not view images of the dead. Yeah, like maybe give a warning for names and images of people who have died to be culturally sensitive. Now, as I said, this is not a like be all end all list. This is just some of the most common stuff. Basically, anything that might happen or come up in your show that could be really upsetting, could trigger someone's PTSD or trigger someone's like anxiety, anything like that should be warned for just as a way to keep people safe. It also doesn't mean that people won't listen to it. I frequently listen to things that contain things that upset me, but because I know it's coming, I can mentally prepare myself for that. So I do want to briefly talk about blurring fiction and reality. Uh, blurring fiction and reality can be a really, really powerful thing to do, and I am very for it in general. I think it's a really cool way of doing fiction. However, doing so without any sign of the fictionality can cause very serious mental disturbances in a lot of people. You can cause someone to have a reality break. You can cause someone to have like an episode, you know, that triggers their mental illness. It's really, really, really important that even if you're playing with fiction and reality, which again, I like, I think is cool, there still has to be a sign that it's not real. Okay, so some examples I've given here on ways you can show that without just being like, hey, everyone, this is fiction. Some ways you can do that are simply having show credits listing this was written by someone. These are the actors, you know, so and so is played by so and so. That's a really clear signal that this isn't real. Mentioning it in the show notes, just a little note there about, you know, like this is a work of fiction, something on the website like this is a work of fiction. That's all you have to do, and that can save huge amounts of distress. So I'm not telling you that you can't do this. I'm saying I think it's awesome. I love it when people do this. I'm saying you have to be responsible with it. So now we're going to talk about websites. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm running out of time. Okay, have a website. It's very important. It's very important for accessibility and just general getting publicity about your show. Make it easy to listen and subscribe to your show on it. There should be a link to listen to the show. There should be a link to subscribe to the show right there, one of the first things on your website. This is especially important for people who use screen readers because a lot of apps and things that use screen readers, it's very hard to actually find the right podcast if you have to search for it. So have a subscription button, have a link to subscribe to your show. People who use screen readers will thank you. <laughs> so also make your website accessible as possible. So this is the WAVE Web Accessibility Evaluation Tool. And I want to, you can all find this, the URL is wave.webaim.org. You can all go to this right now to check your websites. And basically all you do, so I have a couple, I, I deliberately left a couple of mistakes on ours so that I could show you what happens. So I, you put your website in and then this screen will come up that will show you 
your results. So over here on the left-hand side of the screen, you can see the problems and features and all this kind of stuff. So you can see there's four errors on our Studio website. If we go to details, we can actually see what those errors are. So here you can see the main problem is a missing form label. Now, if you click on it, it'll take you to the field in question. You can also click this little eye and it will actually explain what the problem is. So in this case, the problem is that the form doesn't have its HTML labels set up correctly. And that's because this is a MailChimp uh, thing rather than a Squarespace thing that we had to import. So this is something that we'll have to fix if you can fix it. I do want to be clear, not everyone, you know, is capable of building a perfectly accessible website, obviously. As much as we joke about Squarespace being the be-all to end-all in podcasts, Squarespace is actually one of the best simple website builders that works well with screen readers. So I can actually recommend Squarespace for that. You can also see here we have some contrast errors. And these, I believe, are the same thing. Yes, these buttons. So this is low contrast. So we want to make sure that any like text or buttons or anything is high contrast so that it's easily viewable. You can see we have some alerts here. Now, these are things that aren't necessarily the worst thing, but it's worth looking at. So we have something here that's possible heading, question mark. It might be a heading. Is it a heading? We don't know. And that's just because of the way this website is set up. Now, this isn't a problem, but it's something to be aware of. And it's something to show, oh, a screen reader might not know what to do with this, right? Um, and then down here, it even look, this is such a like nice tool. It tells you what you've done well as well. <laughs> so you can see here, it, we've got our features down here and our structural elements, things that tell us we've done good. Structural elements are things like labeling things correctly as a heading or as body text, as navigation. That stuff is really, really, really important for making screen readers work. You can also see we've got these redundant links. These are things in the navigation. There's not much I can do about that on a Squarespace site. And this is what I say when I say, like, go through WebAIM, see what you can fix. But also, I don't think many people are going to yell at you if you can't fix everything, because unfortunately, no one has made a simple website builder that builds perfectly accessible websites. It just doesn't exist. Uh, yes, we have a recommendation for WordPress. WordPress actually has an entire section of accessible templates. So if you are capable of using WordPress, absolutely recommend going and checking out those. Uh, I personally can't make WordPress work for shit. I just don't understand it. So that's why I don't. So this is a really good way to check out issues on your website to see what needs improvement. So let's talk about social media because social media is a huge part of podcasting. Um, first of all, caption your damn audiograms. If you're going to have a cool little audiogram, a little waveform with a snippet of the newest episode, that's awesome. Put captions on it. There's no excuse not to. This isn't just a benefit for disabled people, by the way. I don't unmute things on social media. So if you don't have captions, I have no idea what your audiogram says. Now, Twitter and Instagram both let you use alt text. Now, alt text is something you also need to look at on your website. Anytime there is a picture, you should be adding alt text that describes what the picture is, an image description. This helps people with screen readers actually know what the heck the image is. Facebook is garbage and doesn't let you do that. So on Facebook, I recommend still having your image description, but simply making it a part of the post. You can put it in little brackets that just says image description and then a colon and then the image description. That will do the job. But both Twitter and Instagram do allow you to use alt text. So please, please do. 
On Twitter, capitalize, hashtags. I don't mean in all caps. Please don't do all caps. That's that's shouting. Come on now. But every new word in a hashtag, give it a capital letter at the front. So if you're doing hashtag trees are art, instead of doing that all lowercase, do a hashtag capital T trees, capital A R, capital A art, right? What that does, exactly, Sherry's done an excellent example in the chat. What that does is that lets a screen reader look at that jumble of letters and go, oh, these are words. Whereas if it's all lowercase, a screen reader just tries to pronounce it and that doesn't end well for anyone. So we're going to talk very quickly about live shows. Please use uh, accessible venues. We'll like use wheelchair accessible venues. Again, this is kind of like studios. Even if you don't necessarily think you'll need it, support people that have wheelchair access. An important thing when you're looking at venues, make sure that they actually have wheelchair accessible toilets because I don't know if this is a thing in other countries, but here in Australia, like there are lots of places that the venue is wheelchair accessible, but there's no wheelchair accessible toilet, which is especially gregarious when it's a pub. Like you're what, you're supposed to go drink beer and then profit? I don't know. So <laughs> do check for wheelchair accessibility, both for the venue and its toilets. Wheelchair accessible toilets are usually also unisex, which also means you're using a venue which has gender neutral toilets, which is also very important. If there is a hearing loop at the venue you want to use, ask to use it. Hearing loops seem to be dying out a little bit as a technology, certainly the old copper ones. Um, there are newer FM ones and Bluetooth ones that are still around, but a lot of older buildings do still have the copper hearing loops. Um, so ask to use it. Like it's a very, very simple thing. If you're not sure what a hearing loop is, it's basically a piece of technology that lets people with hearing aids like tune in to a channel, like kind of like tuning into a radio so they can hear you using a microphone or whatever. By the way, use a microphone. I don't think that's in my slides, but use a microphone. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a moment. Try to use venues that are near public transport and have parking. People need ways to get to the thing. So make it easy for them to get to the thing. Let's talk about your actual show. So hire sign language interpreters. And again, you might think, well, we don't have anyone who listens to our podcast that needs sign interpreter. First of all, you don't know that. Second of all, what if they want to bring a friend? You know, like you don't know. They might want to bring a friend or two who uses sign language. Sign language is not universal. Uh, this is quite important. Wherever you are holding the live show, make sure that you are hiring interpreters that speak the correct sign language for that location. So here in Australia, you want to make sure you're hiring Auslan interpreters. In America, you want to make sure you're hiring ASL interpreters. In Britain, you want to make sure you're hiring BSL interpreters. There is a you know, uh, uh, an international sign language, but as far as I know, it is not in common use amongst like, you know, the deaf community. It's more of a I don't know, it's kind of like Esperanto as far as I can tell. So make sure you are booking terps who use the right like language. Also, if you're even if you're if you're in a big country like Australia or America, hire terps from the actual city, ideally, or the state that you're having the show in, because sign language, just like every language, can have very different dialects if it's geographically very separate. So even if it is Auslan interpreters. A Queensland Auslan interpreter and a Victorian Auslan interpreter might still have slightly different like accents or slightly different ways of signing things. So it's generally best to make sure you're using an interpreter from the city you're performing in. Live and theater captioning is an option. However, it is very expensive. Uh, if you have the money, can highly recommend it. Usually these days, theater live captioning, what it is is your uh, audience will download an app on their smartphone and then 
your sound goes to someone in an office who does the the captioning and that fires then to people's phones. So absolutely, if you can afford it, look into live captioning, but it is expensive. Live stream your live event. You can still charge tickets for this. It doesn't have to be free. People understand paying for a ticket to an event, even if it's live streamed. Um, and this is something that disabled people have been begging for for decades. <laughs> but now that COVID has happened, everyone has realized it's possible. So absolutely, like live stream your event, live stream your live show. You can still charge tickets for it. It's totally fine. Uh, maybe charge slightly less, ideally, because when we're talking about disabled people, usually if we can't go to it in person, that's because we are housebound or bedbound. So we probably also don't have much money. So ideally charge a little bit less. These are some things I want you to list on your event listing for your live shows, okay? I want you to list if there is wheelchair access, if there's accessible toilets, how many stairs there are, if there's a lift. Will there be captioning? Will there be interpreters? Will there be flashing lights? Will it be a relaxed performance, which is something that I don't have time to go into, but you can Google. It's a type of way of doing performance that's friendly to more like neurodivergent people. Do you accept companion cards on your ticket bookings? Is there audience participation? Because a lot of neurodivergent people do not like that, myself included. Is there parking or public transport nearby? And specifically, is there disabled accessible parking or transport nearby? Because some public transport is not accessible. Some car parks don't have disabled spots. If there's gonna be loud noise during the performance, warn for that. So you'll see I have a note here, do this even if you don't have something. Please, please do this even if you don't have it. You will save all of us so much time. If I had a dollar for every time I had to call an event or a venue to ask about, can I get into it? Like, is it wheelchair accessible? And they say no, and I have to go, okay, thanks. I'd be so rich. <laughs> like, it's much easier if I can look at an event listing and go, ah, yes, I can go to this. Or even if I'm not, if it's like, this is not wheelchair accessible, I look and I go, oh, okay, I can't go to that. I, it's okay if it's not accessible, but please, please list it in your event listing. Oh my God. Okay, we're going to talk very, very briefly about accessibility policies, and then we will have like 10 minutes of QA. So, Accessibility policies, they're very common in big, in big organizations. Maybe you do or don't have one for your little studio or uh, company. I very strongly recommend them. They don't have to be complicated. Uh, if you want an example, you can read um, ours, which is at passiblepez.com slash accessibility dash policy. So it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be super long. If it is, great, but it doesn't have to be. All you have to do is list what accessibility things you already do, list what accessibility things you plan to do, list what accessibility things you are open to. And this can be as simple as saying, if people have access needs, they are welcome to contact us and make requests. Easy as that. And list your values. And this is actually something uh, that you might find very useful to go look at big corporations. A lot of big corporations, uh, whether or not they actually follow through on this or not is a whole other thing, but a lot of big accessibility policies will have a, we will work with our staff to make sure they have access to all of these things. That kind of thing is an accessibility value. So that's really, really important. And what an accessibility policy does is, A, it means that you have it in writing so people will know that you actually mean it, or hopefully you actually mean it. Two, it makes disabled people feel welcome. If we, if you have an accessibility policy, we look and we go like, oh, cool, they like, all right, and they can read the policy and be like, all right, cool, this seems like a company I can trust. That's really, really valuable. It also gives you internally a guide for working with disabled people. If you have an accessibility policy, 
if someone, if you send out a casting call, right, and you have someone apply to your casting call who's disabled, you will already know what you can offer and how you can deal with that if you have a policy written down. So I very, very strongly recommend you consider having a policy. I also recommend having a safety policy, a code of conduct, all that good stuff. Paperwork is very boring, but very important. And that's all my slides, I think. We do have 10 minutes for questions. So hit me up with your questions. <laughs> Ollie asked how they get so cool. Uh, practice. I'm going to go with practice because I think that's a nicer answer than some of the other things I would say. Also, if you have a question that you think of later and you're like, oh, I wish I had asked that, hit me up on Twitter. Um, I'm at Erin Kian. Um, I'm quite happy to answer simple accessibility questions uh, pretty much all the time. The main thing I want you to take away from this is it's okay if you're not perfect, but I want you to do something. I want you to go away from this session and I want you to implement one thing that you learned here, just one thing. And that will already be a massive improvement. Like, it, as I said, accessibility isn't a checklist, it's a relationship. So it's just about building that relationship with your audience, with your team. Uh, suggestions on conducting accessibility implementations and training. I would recommend getting in touch with uh, an organization that does that. So here in Australia, um, I would recommend getting in touch with Arts Access Australia or here in Victoria, Arts Access Victoria. They usually have people available to do uh, accessibility training and audits and things like that. I'm afraid I don't know any organizations overseas that do that kind of thing, but I would imagine that if you fire up Google and you say like, Accessibility Training Oregon, you'll find something. What about ums and ahs? Oh, that, yes, that's a very good question. I did mean to cover that. Thank you for bringing that up again. Generally, it is fine to not include ums and ahs. Some people do insist that ums and ahs should be included. I think that ums and ahs should be included if they are context relevant. Considering the fact when most people um and ah, what they are actually doing is, is, is signing like, I need a moment to think, or I'm getting my thoughts together, or, you know, just stumbling over a word. That kind of stuff doesn't need to be in a transcript. But if someone is like really thinking like, you know, if someone asks a really hard question, they're like, um, gosh, I don't know, let me think. Um, I think it's okay to put a couple of ums in there. If it's a piece of narrative work with nonfiction or fiction, if the um and ahs are an emotional part of the delivery, definitely include them. What I mean by that is if you have someone who's really nervous and they're being like, um, I don't know, um, that is a narrative um and ah, and thus should be included. So I guess that's kind of where I fall on that. Like if it's narratively important, include the ums and ahs. If it's not, don't worry about it. It's fine. Do I know of any good funding programs that might contribute funds to the production of things like captions and transcripts? I wish. <laughs> uh no i don't i don't know anything like that i have i i would love that to exist unfortunately i think it's one of those things where you kind of just have to like this is something that comes up a lot about them around the cost of accessibility right like especially when we're indie podcasters like oh i don't have the money to do this and it's like I get that. At the same time, it costs money to buy a microphone. It costs money to buy web hosting. There are costs associated with podcasts. It's not a free medium. And I think that accessibility costs need to be factored into your like 
production plan. We factor in our transcription and captioning time, for example, at the very beginning of our production plan. So no, I don't know any good funding places. I wish I did. I would love to see that kind of thing, but unfortunately... I don't know anything like that. I will say that a better person to ask or a better place to ask might be places like Arts Access Australia. They may actually know uh, some places to get some funding for that kind of thing. I, I would love to see some things like uh, transcription or caption scholarships, basically, you know, like little grants call them accessibility grants or something just to make things more accessible. I would love to see that uh, become a part of podcasting. You've just heard from Erin Kian speeding through the end of Beyond Transcripts. If you want to know more about making your podcast or workplace more accessible, head to the show notes for a link to more resources. If you liked this episode, why not check out Podlaw, an episode from 2018? It's another session full of small, practical changes you can make to your audio work and behind the scenes. Please keep in touch. Find us on social media at AudioCraftFest and sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au. Bye for now.